0: sociopolitical issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy. This is You Don't Have to
1: Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome to episode 33 of You Don't Have to Yell, the third episode in our installment on education, and the first one delivered from lockdown here outside of Boston. So, Before we jump into the meat of today's episode, I think it makes sense to talk about the current pandemic we're all living under, given you've chosen my podcast as a way to keep yourself sane while engaging in mandatory social distancing, as opposed to listening to it to engage in elective social distancing. So the idea for this podcast came about a year and a half ago when I realized that people had begun to inhabit their own factual universe. The unprecedented ability to both disseminate and consume information brought about by the internet age had the odd effect of making us all less informed than we were when we had three TV stations that played the news one hour each day. And this phenomenon has never been more glaringly apparent than it is now, where disinformation has led a number of people in this country to brush off the threat posed by the coronavirus. Delaying action until the stock market started to tank. And for those of you who have been listening to this since day one, that seems oddly consistent with American history. But the bottom line is we need to change the way we get and process information. And for my part, I'll promise you this history, data, and anecdote all lie in isolation, but they rarely lie in unison. And I'm going to keep delivering all three to give you a full view of the issue. So, off my soapbox and onto the episode. Now, for this week, I spoke with Pete Bilsmer, a man who's been in education in one form or another for decades, and currently is the director of assessment and program evaluation for the Mukilteo School District just outside of Seattle, but also in doing work for the Gates Foundation and for the superintendent for the state of Washington to find out what exactly makes a good school. And back in 2007, he co-authored a report called The Nine Characteristics of High-Performance Schools, which I've got listed on my website, ydhty.com. And he looked at 25 schools that outperformed their peers in terms of test scores to see what they had in common. So per usual, everything we've been told is wrong. Listen to the interview and learn. I'll be back at the end with closing comments. I wanted to kind of dig into the to the report you wrote on um, on on uh, the nine characteristics of high performing schools. You know, key reason being over the course of the last month, you know, I've had a couple conversations with folks, and the clear indicator in these conversations is that funding will have an impact. You know, an increase in funding can and will have an impact on uh, the outcomes of someone in public education. But the question as to where you spend that money is very right. unclear. Yep. So, you know, what I was what I was hoping, obviously, to figure out is kind of like based on this report, what do you see, and what where where should we be focusing? So, you know, obviously, I I've I've read your report. Um, I'm guessing most of the people listening uh, probably haven't yet. So, you know, maybe just to start start things off, could you talk a little bit about kind of the genesis of the report? You know, what you were hoping to find, and and how you went about how you went about researching these schools.
0: Sure. So um, many years ago, I was hired by the Washington State Department of Ed um, to head up their Research and Accountability Office, and there were some new accountability systems coming into place. And uh, people were wondering what does what does good look like oh, what are the best practices mm-hmm. so um it's 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 interesting that people in general like their local school, but they think all other schools are kind of dismal
1: mm-hmm. which,
0: which is which and we're and we're all you know products of local schools, so we all think we're experts um, and typically what's been done is that we look at test scores uh, as a gauge for success. The only problem is test scores are highly correlated with uh, the family income of the community. So I think there was a, a misconception about what good schools look like. So Uh, I was tasked by our state superintendent to kind of figure out what does good look like? Uh, And so we launched an effort to look at recent studies that looked at high performing schools. And we found about 25 that we thought um, were, uh, had a nice range. Uh, They looked at urban and rural high performing schools, uh, high school, middle school, elementary uh, high poverty, low poverty. And we mm-hmm. took these 25 studies and kind of did an, a content analysis of what they had found. And we came up with kind of nine particular things that were going on uh, in these schools, that that they had them in common. And oftentimes, these were schools that were performing uh, well above their peers, uh, kind of beating the odds. Uh, And the studies actually looked at schools that maybe were similar to them uh, demographically, but weren't um, doing so well uh, in terms of how students were learning. And so then they did comparisons of was like, well, what are these schools doing that the other ones are not? And we came up with these nine characteristics.
1: Okay, cool. And now I know you mentioned you, you were looking at schools that outperformed their peers. What were some of the criteria that, that defined a peer school? Was it, you know, was it income? Was it test? Sc- was it, you know, was it income? Was it, uh, you know, location, urban or rural? Like what were some of the some of the things you use to define a school's peer group?
0: Yeah, I think it's more um, kind of the challenge of their students. So uh, the percentage of students who were low income, the percentage of students who were maybe still learning English, English learners, uh, maybe the percentage who were uh, in, had, had a disability. Um, There are some schools that look really good because they have a self-contained gifted program for highly capable students. Well, you know, you kind of have to control for that too. Um, we looked at race and ethnicity, um, although statistically they have less of an impact than these other variables, but when you kind of put all that challenge together and you do statistical analyses, you can actually find the outliers of schools, um, either on the low end or the high end. Uh, and those studies looked at the ones that were, you know, given the same demographics, um, we're really beating the odds, okay. And these studies looked at those kinds of schools.
1: I'd like to kind of get into each of these characteristics, and we can go into what whatever order you think is most, you know, is is most effective. But I guess why don't why don't you start off like maybe which which do you feel was the most important, or which characteristic do you want to start off with here?
0: Yeah, in, in the document we actually didn't have any particular order, but upon reflection, I think there is one that stands out as the most important and that is effective school leadership Uh, when we came up with this topic we we debated what term to to use we we intentionally stayed away from the word strong strong leadership because strong can mean different things and so we actually used the word effective um, as uh, the term that we wanted to use And, um, and then we, you know, figured out, well, what what does that mean? Um, there's lots of literature about effective leadership or strong leaders or, um, both in the private sector and the public sector, Uh, and leadership is really multifaceted. But uh, what we said was that effective leaders are proactive and they seek the help they need. Uh, They nurture an instructional program and a school culture that's conducive to learning and professional growth. Mm -hmm. Um, And the leadership isn't just somebody who is in a leadership position. Um, it 's principals, but it 's also teachers it 's also uh, district people there's um, there 's counselors there are a number of different kinds of people in a, in any any organization mm-hmm. that can that can be leaders uh, it 's not just the one with the role
1: yeah, well, that was you know that that one of the things that kind of jumped out at me about your report too and and i 'll kind of jump over to another characteristic, or maybe one or two here, is is how much is sort of dependent on the individual, whether they're working in the classroom or working in an administrative setting. So, you know, one example I saw was high standards and expectations for all students. Um, and that was something, you know, I think of some of the best teachers that I had in grade school, and they were the ones who maybe, maybe my, my grade school self felt were merciless taskmasters, but, you know, in, in reality had a very high set of expectations. And is that, is that kind of an example maybe of, you know, kind of the cult, I guess the cultural aspect of what makes, what differentiates a good school from,
0: Absolutely. That that effective leader kind of sets the tone for an organization uh, and creates a culture, whether for good or for bad, and we're talking about uh, a good culture. Um, they set those expectations for adults. They set them for students. They set goals. They're looking at data. Um, When I think about the effective leader, I think of, you know, parts of the body, the head, you know, the intelligence, the competence, the wisdom, the savvy. Uh, But then they've got the heart. They've got the emotional intelligence and the soft skills like empathy and understanding. And they foster communications that uh, are open. Um, But they also have guts. You know, they've got self-confidence to make the hard decisions, and of course, they've got the character of humility and trustworthiness and uh, and empathy. I think empathy is really, really important thing, but that leader does set the tone for everybody else, um, and many of the characteristics of high-performing schools um, are kind of determined and shaped by that effective leader. So, like, the the, the next one I talk about would be the clear and shared focus. I mean, that's 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 something that comes from the leader, uh, and what I mean by this is that everybody kind of knows where they're going, why they're on the same page, they have that shared vision, um, and in schools, the focus has got to be on student learning. It's got to be student centered, um, and so there's a and there's there's kind of an inspiration. There's a vision that captures a. The, the the people's imagination and the enthusiasm uh, and it concentrates you know everything they do their efforts their money their resources uh, they are focused on um, that particular uh, vision and it it can't be too complicated uh, there's there are times when the visions are really really complicated and you don't want that to happen it's got to be clear it's got to be simple it's got to be compelling
1: one of the things that I, we've heard a lot here, and, and I'm sure it's probably you hear is an issue in Washington as well, is, um, the, is the role the standardized tests can sometimes play in almost sidetracking educators in a way. And do you feel, are, are there instances where maybe the, uh, you know, either a state or federally enforced uh, standard or curriculum can kind of get in the way?
0: Uh, For sure. Um, I was going to talk about uh, one of the characteristics is is having an alignment between what the state wants students to learn and what is taught and how it's taught and how it's evaluated. And the evaluation part is often done through standardized assessments. The problem is a lot of times, um, I'm getting back to my original statement, we have been judging schools based on their test scores. And that's like, um, without the context, I mean, there is a really strong correlation between uh, test scores and a, uh, a community's socioeconomic status. So as poverty goes up, test scores go down. So if you're in a school that has high poverty, there is a tendency for the population to think you're a bad school. When really you might be really doing a great job with a really challenging population. And um, so it's, it's, it's pretty challenging to have a real accurate estimate of uh, school effectiveness. So if the test scores come along and they're low, now people are labeling the teachers and the principal as bad. That will, that will make, the employees angry, and so they they want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And because it's being used in the wrong way, um, there is a backlash against standardized testing. Uh, and actually, the standardized tests are w- really well designed compared to other uh, assessments that are created. It's just their use that's been a problem. And, and there are there are schools or there are states that use test results um, as part of a teacher's evaluation. Uh, and usually they screw that up. And so that even makes it even uh more
1: reason to not like the test. Yeah. Yeah, well that's it's it's one of the traps the town I live live in um falls into because I this is the town I grew up in so I moved around a bit and then moved back, but we're from a socioeconomic standpoint, we're very mixed. It's a very wide, very varied. Uh if you go one town over where it's more homogenous, the test scores are higher. And so what you find is people when looking for a place to say, a place to live, will look at this other town because they say, oh, well, you know, Westwood has good schools, but the grade is entirely the test scores. And uh, again, not to say you can't come from a lower income tier and not do well or not be a good student. But like you said, statistically speaking, those test scores are going to be more reflective of socioeconomic background than the quality of the schooling per se. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and, and, and it sounds to me like you're, you're saying there's almost, there can also be a, a morale issue, uh, that that creates when you have, sure. in. yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. You mentioned, um, high expectations. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the, uh, you know, I, I would call it in my order, the third in the rank in terms of these characteristics. I mean, uh, having high standards for everybody and then having, uh, uh, high expectations for everybody. And really, um, we tend to have high expectations for certain people, but not all. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the problem. Uh, I think when we look and have high expectations for everybody, um, we're basically saying we believe everybody can do much better than we think they can. Uh, and there's lots of instances where um, students will surprise us Um, Mm -hmm. I think of Helen Keller, you know, I mean, think about what people would have thought she was, she would become, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think she was deaf and blind and maybe more. And she's got a PhD. Uh, I think we can do much better than we expect. Mm -hmm. uh, I've heard people talk about folks having, reaching their full potential. Well, that, that conjures up to me a bucket in that at some point you're full but we really don't know how high the edges of that bucket are Mm -hmm. uh and so um we can always do better Uh, there's no point at which we okay we're full um so i think we can have really high expectations for everybody and i think we'll be surprised uh and I, and I could tell you some personal stories about my own adopted children and how we got them, and the unbelievable progress they made given their background um their mental illness um, uh their the family they came from their their the parent the gene pool mm-hmm. uh just you can't you, you, under most circumstances a person would just say, well, they're really not going to go very far in life. And in fact, they are.
1: Hey, you. I hope you're enjoying this week's show. And as I mentioned at the top, I started this podcast to change the way we get information and talk about the issues that affect us. And I need your help in reaching as many people as possible. So I'm going to ask two things. Number one, Click on the share option on your device to share this with your friends, family, and the people you don't really like but stay connected with on social media anyway. Number two, visit ydhty.com. That's Y is in you, D is in don't, H is in have, you know the Rest.com, and check out some of the written content. And if you like it, share that too, because some people, oddly enough, prefer to read. And I'd like to make sure we don't leave those folks out. Lastly, when you're at ydhty.com let me know what you think there's a contact us form you can fill out right at the bottom of the page that goes straight to my inbox i'd love to hear from you and with that out of the way let's get back to the show you know it's funny i've been because i've been listening to you talk and it's obvious that you know you got an education due to some or whether it's you, what brought you an educa- education or what you discovered in education, you know, it's very obvious you have a, 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 a passion for, uh, for, for nurturing children and a passion for encouraging growth.
0: I've got three adopted children. One uh, I adopted when we lived overseas, then realized he probably needs some siblings. We ended up adopting two kids whose parents both had AIDS and who were both mentally ill. Uh, and they were 7 and 10 when they came to us um and a lot of the teachers in the schools they were attending felt really really sorry for them so they were really supportive emotionally but they didn't accompany that with any kind of a high demand mm-hmm. they didn't have the high expectations uh to me, the the answer, the best person is a warm demander, somebody who's got this emotional support, but also um, is not going to let people float by. And so mm-hmm. when uh, my daughter, who was the youngest, came to live with us, and I think she was in second or third grade, she couldn't read um, because she had always been able to figure out a way to, you know, kind of manipulate the adults to, to get out of doing work. Um, the, yeah. And so uh, it's just like well, we we just started to read, and within two years she had passed the fifth grade state test in reading. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but yet she still had this kind of complex, you might say, that she wasn't smart because she knew she was behind other people, mm-hmm. and that's been a lifelong challenge: is to help her to see how smart she really is. Because mm-hmm. after all, look at look at the what the life she came from. Um, I won't go into details of all the really bad things that happened to her, but it was a really, really tough life um, living in that environment. Mm -hmm. Um, And to get her to understand now, I mean, she's now in her thirties and she just now is starting to feel confident in her own abilities and that, yeah, she is smart. She, um, I mean, she's smart in lots of different ways, but academically, she's smart too. Uh, and her emotional intelligence is off the charts because yeah. she's had to survive in um, some really tough situations, including being homeless and um, many other issues she's had to deal with. So uh, she's an awesome, awesome person, the most amazing person I've ever met, um, yeah. given her background. But she did it. Because she kept trying. There's that issue of perseverance and grit, and she's got that. A lot of people will give up when times get tough. Um, and you need that adult there, even if it's just one adult, to keep pushing. Um, I, I knew some people who were kind of analyzing the people in their school who were dropping out, and none of them had a caring adult that was pushing them, and the people who kind of were, were in similar circumstances. Yeah. Had some had at least one adult that was saying, "You can do this. I'm not. You're. You know. You're not going to drop out. Um, I'll be here for you." And they got them to finish. So um, the the importance of an adult that really takes an interest and uh, and supports um, a, a student can't be overemphasized.
1: Yeah, and that was that was another one that made the list as well, which was community and family involvement as well, right?
0: That's right. So that's, that came lit last on the list, but in some ways, you know, the high level of family and community involvement, uh, you know, the fa- the family is the first teacher. The parents are the first teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the time that a child spends in their life, the first, you know, 15, 20 years is with the family. So to get the family involved, and then community resources involved um, basically communicates to them that it's not just the teachers and the staff who are important, that mm-hmm. everybody, businesses, families, social service agencies, everybody comes needs to come around and play a vital role in helping the schools and the, the students themselves be successful.
1: Mhm. Yeah, we you know it's it's funny we have so I think like a lot of towns the opioid epidemic has you know hit hit my town and um I think it's probably subsided a bit in in the past year or so. You know, but as a result there are a group of kids who you know don't you know who are who are coming from you know relatively rough uh, rough homes really an absence of any of that authority, but then you also have folks in the school who are really, who, you know, who are, who are really, you know, understanding of the case and, um, and, and are really there for, for, you know, for these kids. And and what you hope is that, again, you, I, I don't think you're ever going to save them all, but, you know, your hope is that if there are enough people like that out there, at least some of them aren't going to slip through the cracks.
0: Yeah. I think that's what makes teaching so challenging these days. What teachers are seeing now is more and more kids coming who don't have stable home environments. They've they've experienced mm-hmm. all kinds of abuse and um, dysfunction uh, in in the community, um, in the family, um, and really, I mean, you shouldn't go into teaching. For the money, you go into it because it's almost like a, it's a calling, you need to have those soft skills, you need to have that empathy. you know, I, I like to say it's not rocket science, it's way harder than rocket science because rocket science has certain scientific laws that apply all the time, and so we can pl- we can send a satellite to you know billions of miles away and and all the rules of science work yeah but but individuals. They're all different and they're constantly changing and you put 25 of them mm-hmm. in a room and it's like, oh my goodness, mm-hmm. uh, way harder than rocket science. Most schools uh, have average to good teachers. There are a few really exceptional ones and there's probably a few that probably need to leave the profession. Um, uh, but they are, they can make a difference. Uh, and each one of them needs to see that they can make a difference, and they need to have those high expectations. And at some point where they feel like they're burned out or they don't have that, that's the time to either get refreshed or go on a sabbatical or change professions uh, because these kids are too important to not give everything to them.
1: And that was one thing I, I didn't see on the on the list, but I was I was curious about, which is there's not a mention of, Teacher standards, teacher assessments. Unless I missed it, you know.
0: Well, they're in they're in what we call frequent monitoring of learning and teaching. Okay. So um, that's where there's a constant uh, kind of evaluation of what students need to know versus what they're getting, um, mm-hmm. and so you you're different. The teacher is differentiating. Um, based on how well they're grasping what is being taught. Okay. Uh, and so that is a that is a constant process. It happens all the time. We're always getting feedback, whether it's verbal or, you know, body language, that somebody's getting it or not getting it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can actually measure how well they're learning through, um, you know, periodic, what we call formative assessments. Um, and if they're not getting it, There has to be some kind of an intervention or some different way to to word it or uh, extra support uh, is provided. Uh, I think about the students who are really bright, the highly capable kids who already know it when the teacher's teaching Mm it. They need to be pushed, too. Um, And so that, that frequent. Monitoring of learning and teaching is one of those characteristics. It it's really comes down to the what what good teaching is. Um, what 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 do we expect students to know, and how well are they getting it? Uh, and if they not if they don't get it, uh, what are you going to do? And if they already know it, what are you going to do? Um, which means you've got this variety, tremendous variety in any class. Uh, and the teacher has to figure out all of this some of them are getting some of them are not you've got a lesson that's going to teach this you know some do some don't get it it's like now what oh my goodness i mean think about that
1: <laughs> yeah do you it doesn't sound like there's a way you can standardize that though like it it sounds like what is good teaching obviously there are probably some consistencies but it sounds like given the variety of of communities, uh, the variety of, of backgrounds, and, and more importantly, like the variety of each year, uh, each class you get. I mean, it's a different group of kids, uh, different dynamic entirely. Is, is there a way to like? Is there is there a way somebody in in Washington or somebody in you know Washington State can say uh, can say, well, this is what makes good teaching, and teachers should be abiding by this, or is it something? Maybe it does. There have to be a little more. Uh, flexibility given to people at sort of the the school level?
0: There have been attempts to kind of standardize or structure the instruction um, very narrowly. Uh, And usually that works in locations where maybe the teachers are new and they really aren't quite sure how what to do or how to do it. And so it's almost like you've got a playbook and you, you just kind of read the script. Uh, It's more sophisticated Mm -hmm. than that, but um, that way it kind of, there's some quality control. The problem is every, every student is different. Every classroom is different from year to year, from day to day. Uh, and it might be that, you know, everybody wants, you want everybody to be on the same page at the, on mm-hmm. the same day and structure it that way. But life happens. Uh, and if you've got more kids not getting it that are getting it, you're going to have to do something else rather than just read, you know, a script and follow the instructions from some manual. So mm-hmm. that's what makes teaching an art, uh, um, yeah. is, is to give, teachers the flexibility to adjust on the fly. That means we have to have really good teachers and that's a whole other conversation um, and, but you know these assume I mean, this, this, this report we put t- together is that these schools have really good teachers. We didn't say necessarily how you get them that way. I mm. mean that's a whole other conversation uh, of what you need to look for, what's the process for hiring them, how do you support them. Um, yeah but one of the characteristics that we have is um, is that the professional development that takes place is is focused and is kind of continuous it 's on site it 's job embedded it 's not necessarily going to a conference for a day and have somebody talk to you and then go back and then maybe not implement it but there is there is a need and a, one of the common characteristics of these high performing schools is that there is a strong emphasis on on training staff in the areas they need it most. Um, Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that's aligned with whatever the school or district's vision is or the goals they have. But the sense is that everybody in the building, everybody in the culture is a learner, not just the students. That means Mm -hmm. the adults have to be learning too.
1: One of the things I, I expected out of this report was almost like a shopping list for funding in a way. and. And in a lot of ways, it doesn't that a lot of these characteristics seem more cultural than, uh, than, than funding driven. The professional development does seem like, and correct me if I'm wrong, it does seem like if, if we're looking holistically at schools and we're saying, well, if we were to increase funding 2%, 5%, what have you, where would we put that? It seems like professional development might not be a bad place to focus.
0: I think you're right on. Most of these characteristics don't require more money, Mm -hmm. but this is, but professional development is an area which um, could cost more money. Some of the best professional development I've ever seen is having instructional coaches um, help teachers refine their practice. Um, So what you do is you hire really good teachers who also have good relational skills, who, who who have the credibility with other adults and they are experts in their content area, but they're also experts um, in, in pedagogy, in the the Mm -hmm. art of teaching. And you, and you need to hire those people and the, the hiring of those people costs money. But Imagine if every school had you know, even a half time uh, coach who was really really good uh, I've seen some results of schools that were really low performing and talk about turning things around um, there was We had in our state what we called a math helping corps, and they hired um, i think eight eight instructional coaches to go to really low performing schools and they were and they shared they each were there for a half time, and so sixteen schools got the benefit of this math expert, and these were all el- elementary schools and elementary school teachers are not necessarily known for being you know taking calculus you know they're mm-hmm. they're they're they're, t- they're teaching elementary school because they love kids, mm-hmm. uh, and they may not have have mastered all the math that they need to teach. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're a little afraid of it and maybe don't teach it that much uh, because they'd rather do other things. So mm-hmm. you, you bring along a master coach in who understands math but also can work well with the adults and have them model good instruction, have them watch a teacher provide instruction and then give feedback. Mm-hmm. When that happened – the score the test scores in math for those schools on average went up like thirty points, and in two years they actually closed the gap with the state I mean uh, because teachers understood how to the, the math concepts and how to teach that, then those eight people were were uh, reassigned to other schools. the next set of schools had the same same phenomenon they were really low performing you know 40 50 points below the state and in 2 years they closed the gap and sustained it after the coaches left so i think instructional coaches would be one of the most effective cost effective investments to um, improve schools and have them be high performing
1: are there any other areas you feel funding could be maybe better apportioned or any places where it would be particularly effective
0: oh sure Oftentimes, money is spent in the traditional ways, and it doesn't make that much of a difference. And I can talk about some of the things that we think would make a difference but don't. But mm-hmm. where, they, where it really can help is if you've got half-day kindergarten, you make it full day. Um, I think the, the whole pre-K area um, is, is huge. We know that the biggest bang for the buck probably is investment you know, in the first five years of, of a child's life. You know, you could make the day longer. You could make the year longer. Uh, again, training for teachers and, and how to differentiate, how to help the kids who are struggling, how to help the kids who are, are really good. Um, I think there's a there's a need for more counselors, um, more money because of the kinds of things that kids are facing at home. Mm-hmm. Um, career counselors helping students in high school figure out where, where they want to go, where, where do they fit. Um, I'm involved in a project now that's helping, that's giving surveys to, to students that both look at their interest and their personality to help mm-hmm. them find kind of professions or career paths that will suit them. Um, I've had nine careers in my life, and mm-hmm. um, I would have benefited from having some guidance early on, so I wouldn't have so many um, kind of mistakes or false starts. I mean, I learned. Something from all of them, but it would have been helpful for me to get a little more guidance about what professions would be best for me. Um, uh, what else? Some some diagnostic assessments. We really don't have good assessments to figure out um, why somebody's having a problem. We might be able to give them an assessment to say, "Oh, you're reading two grade levels below standard," or um, but why? In math, why are they not getting fractions? What is going on? What is it about, you know, them not understanding a concept? We know they don't because they can't answer the question, but we don't necessarily know
1: why. So we've encountered that with two of our kids where both had to be evaluated for learning disabilities. And the way it's structured is you you effectively had the parent effectively has to ask. So if you're not let's say as savvy or if you're not paying attention you can have a situation where an undiagnosed learning disability goes into ninth grade and then right. all of a sudden you realize you're you know all the time that uh, you know that the foundation isn't there effectively but I know something you mentioned earlier was just you know the issue of teacher quality effectively mm-hmm. um, the issue of of um, some teachers being very engaged uh, you know eager to learn, eager to grow and some maybe just being a little burnt out and are there are there improvements that could be made on that front you mentioned of course teaching isn't rocket science it's harder and i'd agree with that because in rocket science you don't have everybody and their grandmother criticizing the astronauts for how they're flying the rocket and of course every school like you said or every everyone I think everyone loves their neighborhood school, but generally has something to say about the quality of education, despite their level of knowledge. And a lot of times, I think teachers take the hit for that. Um, I guess, is there, is there a kernel of truth there, though, that, that maybe the way teachers are, are hired and, and retained and evaluated needs to be addressed or, or not so much?
0: Well, I think the current teacher evaluation system leaves a lot to be desired. At least it is in our state. Um, Mm -hmm. Most teachers get rated as proficient or distinguished. Uh, Very few of them are kind of lower than that. Um, And it's really hard to get an ineffective teacher to leave the profession. Uh, Principals kind of have to... carry the load on that, but they really don't have enough time to evaluate everybody thoroughly. Uh, and there's a lot of variation in the ratings. I mean, you could have two principals or a principal and an assistant principal um, do ratings. And um, my wife is a fifth grade teacher and mm-hmm. she gets rating and she is a rock star, but they'll have an assistant principal come in and, and watch her class and won't even understand the nuances of of how good the teaching is going on because it just kind of they they don't they're not instructional leaders, and mm-hmm. she might get a she might get an, an average rating and it'll like it'll really make her mad, um, mm-hmm. and then somebody else will come along who's more sophisticated and they notice these things and so she gets a distinguished rating, and mm-hmm. so there's kind of inter reliability issues between the ratings. Um, I mentioned before that some of the states in our country use test scores um, as part of the evaluation process, and they usually screw that up. Um, and it gives standardized tests um, a bad rap. Um, and of course, everybody's getting paid the same way, usually by their level of education and experience, regardless of how effective they are. Um, and And teachers are um, they move around and they 're laid off based on seniority so essentially they have tenure uh, and there are some there are some positions that are much harder than others. Um, my my wife is teaching fifth grade, and she's had people who are teaching fifth grade with her, and they say, I can't take all this work. We've got three state assessments. We've got all this curriculum. I'm going to go down to second grade. <laughs> and they say, man, I, I can't believe we're getting paid the same amount because second grade is so much easier. Now, anybody who's listening to this is – you know, (laughs) who's teaching second grade probably feels like second grade is really hard, but I'll send um, the angry letters your way. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, but, you know, so the way we compensate, um, teachers, the way we, um, evaluate them, I think, uh, it just needs another look. Um, I I think it would be great if students gave feedback to teachers about how well the teacher is doing. Um, Mm -hmm. it's, it's really ironic that teachers are evaluating, uh, students all the time and giving them feedback and giving them grades, but the students are the customer and we're not asking the customer to give, to give feedback to the teacher. Um, typically, I mean, I'm involved in a little project that's, that's trying to do this and it's a really scary thing for a teacher to ask students for feedback. Clearly there are issues with teacher quality that need to be addressed.
1: It does sound like more of an issue that has to be addressed holistically. You can't really take one element out, you really need it all. You really need the teachers to be engaged, you need the proper leadership at the top and you need the the families and the community to be engaged or else it's it's like the three legs of a stool effectively. Am I right there?
0: That absolutely. It is it's hard. It's comprehensive. You can't just do two or three. The, mm-hmm. you, you gotta have them all, um, yeah. and there are there's some uh, surveys in the back of the document where a school could actually assess themselves in each of these areas, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not that hard. Uh, the surveys could be reproduced and given, um, and you could you could have um, students take them. You can have teachers take them or kind of rate themselves. That's that was my dissertation for my doctorate was looking at the survey results um, of teachers that were rating themselves based on these nine characteristics. It's It was fascinating. Uh, what, what's interesting is that the parents usually give schools r- high ratings and everything. But teachers, um, I think, can be, I, I think they tend to kind of rate themselves more highly than they should, but it can also be a starting point for a conversation. You know, one of the things that this report doesn't talk about are th- some of the things that we often think would make a difference, but really don't.
1: So what are some of those things that folks think are effective but maybe aren't quite as valuable?
0: Well, um, small schools, there was a big initiative by the Gates Foundation um, about 10, 15 years ago to make schools smaller. Um, And that was rather expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, And we found that um, it really didn't make that much of a difference. Mm -hmm. smaller class size is often um, talked about as making a big difference it does make a difference Um, it makes a small difference and it's also very expensive Um, Mm -hmm. there's a there's a, a book called visible learning by john hattie and he actually rates 138 different factors that can help students perform better and He actually, he's he's studied the literature to see which ones have the biggest impact. Well, out of this 138, class size is ranked 106th. So Mm -hmm. it's at the bottom 25%. So yeah, it makes a difference. Um, but it makes a small difference. Uh, some of the classic studies in Tennessee that were done using very sophisticated uh, st- uh, statistical sampling and, and random sampling looked at changes in test scores between classes of tw- twenty-three and fifteen, a difference mm-hmm. of eight students. The um, the test scores were about eight points higher in the smaller classroom. So, in other words, um, about one. Percentage point for each reduction uh, in uh, the the class size, Mm. Um, and of course, if you're making that kind of reduction in class sizes, you got to have more teachers and you got to have more classrooms, all of which cost money. Better textbooks. Um, We we did some studies uh, when I was at the state of what textbooks provided the best, um, you know, kind of. result in the best outcomes. There was no, there was no particular thing because again, it's the, it's the teaching, not necessarily the textbooks and teachers often will supplement whatever they have with, uh, with additional materials or they're, they're embellishing on the story or they're giving personal examples. It's about the learning, not necessarily the words on a page. Mm -hmm. Um, technology is another one i mean there's a certain minimum amount of technology but it can go too far Um, i work in an area where microsoft is based uh, outside of seattle Uh, and that's where my my wife teaches in that school district guess what they're always pushing technology uh, the latest technology and it's expensive and it's all you know microsoft products But it's a little bit too much, and Mm -hmm. um, there's a constant learning curve among the teachers to figure out how to use this stuff. Better pay. At a certain point, the better pay um, doesn't really pay off. Uh, Mm -hmm. I work in a district that has very high pay, some of the highest pay in our state. Mm -hmm. But yet, they're always asking for more. And if you were to Mm -hmm. compare... Their salaries, on an annualized basis, on a eight, for an eight eight hour a day, it actually is pretty good. Um, in fact, I would say it's very good. And there are disparities around the state, which then causes people to move, uh, which can impact rural areas. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes we don't we talk about the pay, but we we forgot about the benefits. Um, sometimes the unions negotiate tremendous benefit deals, so they can always say their pay is not that great, but the benefits are fantastic. Charter schools is another new new idea. Uh, it doesn't really cost that much more, and it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are good charter schools. There are bad charter schools. There are good public schools. There are, there are lousy ones. Um, mm-hmm. That that kind of new idea. Um, It really hasn't made much of a difference. So, and some of these things really do cost a lot of money. When you look at the nine characteristics, a lot of this, I mean, the cost of leadership, you got to have a principal. They're probably going to get paid about the same, but you got to get a, you want to get a good one. Um, You want to have that vision. You want to have the high expectations. That doesn't cost any more. So, money does make a difference in some areas, but it doesn't make a diff- uh, much of a difference on some of these high cost areas i'll say one other thing about um, the the use of extra money in our district, we are focusing more and more on equity issues,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: we decided that we would pay for all of our students in tenth um, in in grade to or eleventh grade to take either the ACT or the SAT. And we we do it during the school day so that uh, a a student who's from a low-income family, um, maybe they couldn't get someplace on a Saturday or maybe they couldn't afford the tuition or the the, 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 to pay for the test. We're basically saying we're going to level the playing field. We're going to give it to everybody. Now, that takes money. Mm -hmm. But it's going to let students uh, see that maybe they have the potential for going to college. They never thought college was a viable option. Um, and when you give it to everybody, all of a sudden there are students who maybe had low expectations of their what they could do in life. They realize, hey, maybe I could go on to college, whether it's a two-year college or a four-year college. We're also paying for students to take an assessment in a in a foreign language if they already know that language. So for students in grades 8 through 12 they're they come in and they take an exam in their in their uh, home language. A lot of these kids are low income and don't speak English all that great. Mm-hmm. But they can get up to 4 high school credits in 2 to 3 hours of time just by taking this assessment. Well,
1: that assessment costs money, but we're paying for it because we think it's the right thing to do. The thing that I'm taking away from this is that it, to some extent, people on the outside really have to trust the profession. Number one, not necessarily second guess so much, but number two, not necessarily assume that the narrative they're being pushed about where they need to spend the money is valid. Um, because as I look, I am I tend to be pretty cynical about this stuff. And you know, as I look at better textbooks and technology, there's a straight line to the folks who would really want schools to spend more. Um, if we talk about smaller class sizes, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to get new, I don't want to get into a conversation about profiteering off the public sector or, um, or maybe unions pushing an agenda. Uh, but, uh, but, but I guess, I guess the bottom line is, um, you know, it's a question as to whether it's a profit motive or, or whether it's truly for the better of the school. And it sounds to me like with each school being unique, each school being individual, The thing we should really focus on is how do we attract, hire, and and nurture better teachers, and then just trust them to make the right decisions.
0: I I think trusting the professionals is a good thing. Um, Mm -hmm. I think we, because we all went to school, we we seem to uh, feel like we're experts, and we're not, Uh, unless you're in the profession. And this is, it's a complicated process. Um, I thought of one other area in which money is really important. And that is, you know, know—in the at the local level, um, taxes have to be raised uh, to supplement whatever they're getting from the state. Um, what the state provides isn't enough. And if a, if a community doesn't vote for a levy or a bond... Um, There can be huge overcrowding problems. Uh, You've Mm got to, you know, with the growing population, you've got to have better facilities. We're busting at the seams here in our district. Um, We've got portables everywhere because Mm -hmm. in the past we didn't pass a a bond where we could build more schools. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, if you want – better services to fill in for what the state doesn't provide you have to pass some kind of a levy and in our state you gotta have 50% or more well a lot of people will say I don't I don't think the schools are, are very good or I don't have any kids and they're looking very narrowly. It's like it's going to cost me another $200 a month to pay for this. In some cases, they're just replacing an old one with a new one and there's no change, but you still have to vote for it. Uh, and it still looks like money coming out of your pocket when really maybe it's the same or even less than what you've been paying. So mm-hmm. there is this tens- tendency to, to to vote against schools which i think in the long run are, is is counterproductive because the quality of the schools is going to impact the local community and the lo- you know the kids who live in that community um, are going to grow up to be smart and productive or they're going to you know or or not uh, yeah. so the the better the schooling the more likely the the, the neighborhoods in the community are going to have the kind of people that will uh, be good employees, uh, they'll obey the law, that kind of thing.
1: There were a couple of things that I pulled out of that conversation. First, schools are just like members of Congress and that we love ours, but we hate everyone else's. And as a result, we create these structures that restrict teachers' ability to do their jobs. And second, is that you don't need a master's degree to read from an instruction book sent down by a state or federal entity. And Every school is different, and every class in every school is different. So we need to give teachers the latitude to teach and not to take a one-size-fits-all approach. And with all the talk about technology and class size, Pete's study shows that investing in professional development and in pre-K and kindergarten could actually improve outcomes. And what's more... The investment in teachers is something that pays off long after the expense of training has been incurred, as opposed to textbooks, which are good until someone draws boobs on everything. Now, it should also be noted that Pete joined me from Kirkland, Washington, which is ground zero for the country's coronavirus epidemic. So let's all keep him and his family in our thoughts as this thing drags on. Um, Also... As I mentioned at the top of the episode, you can find a link to Pete's report and a write-up of this episode on ydhty.com. Please visit and share. Now, next week, the data monkey returns. Will we talk about education? Will we freak out about the current pandemic? Probably a whole lot of both, but you'll need to listen to find out. So please join us, per usual. Show music, courtesy of Tac. YDHTY is painstakingly crafted and produced by the big Geno, Jason Putney. Until the next, and there will be a next, this is Dan Sally, signing off.